This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan. When we look at the quote-unquote Muslim world, particularly but not limited to the Middle East, there are many countries which exhibit high levels of authoritarianism or anti-democratic tendencies. More importantly, there are also many regions which are underdeveloped and riddled with conflict. Now, the Western and neoliberal narrative is that the problem is with Islam in and of itself. This, I think, is an incredibly shallow way of looking at things. So on today's show, I will be in conversation with Prof. Ahmed Kuru, the author of Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment, A Global and Historical Comparison, The book is a deep dive into the rich history and politics of the Muslim world and unpacks this issue in detail. Prof. Ahmed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about the politics of the quote-unquote Muslim world, tell me a little bit about yourself and the research that you do. So I was born in Turkey and the last 25 years I've been in the United States doing my PhD Now I'm a professor here. And my dissertation became my first book, Secularism and State Policies Toward Religion, the United States, France, and Turkey. I'm a comparativist comparing countries' cases, uh, whether they are Muslim majority, Christian majority, or other religion majority. You came to Malaysia a couple of weeks ago. What was your overall experience like in Malaysia? So since the publication of my book, Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment, a Global and Historical Comparison, I've been in touch with multiple societies, both Muslims and non-Muslims, intellectuals and non-academic readers. And my principle and ideal is to visit every country where my book is translated and published. So, of course, United States and UK are the two countries where it is originally published in English. But at the same time, I've been traveled to Germany and France, where it is coming out soon. Then Bosnia, Morocco, where it was translated. I couldn't go Iran for various reasons, but I've been to Indonesia. And I was truly looking forward to my Malaysia visit, my first time. And I was very excited by the launch of my book's Malay translation by Islamic Renaissance Front and invited by Dr. Farouk. And before that, two years ago, Lester Hikmah by Rashidi, they also published a small booklet on a similar thesis I produced on the Ulema State Alliance and how it hinders democracy and development in the Muslim world. Therefore, I had several Zoom events in Malaysia, and finally, I was in Malaysia between 5 and 10 January, which was very exciting for me. I was uh, having four talks in Malaysia, five talks in Pakistan. And I was a little bit worried about Pakistan because of the Islamist secularist controversy. But my friends were telling me that both groups like my work because my book and my general arguments are really kind of in the middle of this Islamist secularist debate. Therefore, I have friends and supporters from both groups. 
And in Malaysia, since I had wonderful 10 days in Indonesia last year, I was expecting similar exclusively positive experience. But for uh, a surprising manner, in a, in a, uh, it started with a controversy by some conservatives argued that I'm a quote-unquote liberal ha- having a Western agenda. So that's why my visit to Malaysia started with a bit defensive. I had to explain that I'm a social scientist, not coming to preach religion, therefore Jakim or religious police should not be concerned about me. I am a practicing Muslim and my book, in fact, is a defense of Islam against Bernard Lewis Huntington and those who say Islam is the reason of the problems. But after we have four wonderful events in Malaysia, I thought that negativity ended and I was coming to your radio show as the last event. Right. But unfortunately, at this point, police intervened. They came to of my events, interrogated my publisher. Uh, I had to cancel this radio show. That's what we are doing on Zoom. Then I reached out to the prime minister's office. They guarantee my safety as an American citizen. Nothing will happen to me. To make the very long story short, right before uh, boarding my plane, I was interrogated by police again. And I make it public on Facebook when the chief police in Malaysia said that we had no issue with Kuru. I even post the photos I took with policemen. I'm trying now focus on the positive experience I had in Malaysia with my friends, readers, intellectuals. And the negativity also is an experience I learned. It never happened before. I hope it will never happen again. <laughs> And I'm really, really glad that you're, you know, back safe, um, you know, in the US um, and, and, you know, we are able to do this interview now because it is a incredibly fascinating book. Um, so let's talk about your book. Your book, um, Prof. Ahmed, is about the Muslim world. Could you define that a little bit for us when we talk about the Muslim world? What do we mean? Are we talking about countries in the Middle East specifically or do countries in Southeast Asia with a Muslim-majority population count as well? I want to emphasize uh, on the two aspects of your really $1 million question. One aspect is that when we when I use the term Muslim word, many people question, are you about arguing Muslim exceptionalism? whether the Muslim world is exceptional. No, in fact, the opposite. In the book, I'm trying to say there is no negative Muslim exceptionalism. Muslims, Christians, and others have universal laws and rules. And there are many similarities between uh, Muslim and non-Muslim societies. When you have intellectual class and economic entrepreneurs encourage, you have development regardless of the religion of society. Why am I using this categorization? Because that's the what I know best out of 200 countries in the world. I focus on 50 of them. It's a big enough. I cannot focus on 200 countries. Right. And in the literature before me already, as I refer to well-known American scholars, 
Samuel Huntington, who wrote about Clash of Civilizations, and Bernard Lewis as a historian of the Ottoman Empire, they were making generalizations about Muslim world. And I came into this field to challenge certain misunderstandings. That's why, in fact, I use the term. The second point I want to emphasize in your question, whether it is about the Middle East or not, because since I grew up in Turkey, since I know Ottoman Empire well, whether my book is on the Middle East, I try to go beyond the Middle East before and after the publication of the book. After the publication, many Pakistani friends told me that the book makes perfect sense because what I call ulama state alliance is they are calling the millet, Mullah military nexus and very much making sense in the South Asian context. In the Southeast Asia, interestingly, Indonesia, where the book translated, now making fifth edition, and out of 200 reviews published on the book, 50 of them published in Indonesia. And the Indonesian says that they like the book because of its emphasis on an explanation of Muslim golden age between 8th and 12th centuries. Mm-hmm. And also now they are having the debate about the role of Nahdlatul Ulama in presidential elections. What will be the future of Indonesian democracy in terms of ulama and state? And they say that my book is very relevant. And in Malaysia, I saw many readers saying that this book is addressing Malaysia directly. So that makes me happy that, to see that my book is relevant beyond the Middle East. I want to talk about an important period which you just brought up and you also highlighted in your book, which is between the 9th century and the 12th centuries, right? Where the Muslim world was far more developed philosophically and socioeconomically than the West. Paint a picture for me. What did the Muslim world look like back then? At that time, Muslims had political control over three continents to a large degree, Asia, Europe, and Africa. And that helped them to establish intercontinental trade. And they developed certain economic institutions as we use, like Czech in the English, coming from Persian Czech. And at that time, this also helped them to learn multiple cultures. They learned philosophy of Greeks, government techniques of Persia, mathematics and numbers of India, certain cultivation techniques of agriculture of Sub-Saharan Africa. And they taught them to Europeans. That is why Europeans call their numbers Arabic numerals. Although Muslims learn from India, they taught it. They Muslims learn paper making from China and taught it to Europe. That was the what I call and many call Muslim golden age between 8th and 11th, 12th centuries of economic development and scientific productivity. And there were two characteristics of that era. One characteristic uh, is that already mentioned that Muslims were open-minded to learn from other cultures and they appreciate the non-Muslim citizens' contributions because for many centuries, most lands were not Muslim majority yet. Muslims coexisted with Christian Jews, Zoroastrians and others and appreciate their contributions. Second, 
at that time, there was very strong scholarly class in the Muslim societies and economic class. And certain level of independence exists between religious class, what is called ulama, the Islamic scholars, and the political authorities. And this autonomy and independence make every class creative and competitive. That was one of the main pillars of Muslim golden era. In your book, you also talk about, um, and, and your book is, is deeply introspective. You talk about how this transformation from the Muslim world, which you just talked about, right, in the, in the 9th to 12th century, to what it eventually became, is not just about colonialism, but so much more than that. I do, however, want to spend some time to talk about colonialism because I do think it's an important period. I'm wondering, Prof. Ahmed, what was the impact of colonialism and the process of extracting wealth by force from the global south to the global north? Um, what was that impact on the Muslim world? For the history of the Muslim era, there were two important periods of ex foreign domination. One was the Mongols plus Crusaders, as their well-known invasion of Baghdad in 1258 and destruction of Ottoman uh, Abbasid Caliphate. In the book, I engage with this very seriously and say that these foreign invasions in 12, 13, 14th centuries were important, but the intellectual stagnation in the Muslim world began earlier. In the 11th century, there was an economic crisis which led to centralization of economy by state control. Meanwhile, Turks coming from Central Asia established more military empires. And this state control over economy and militarization really disrupt the economic pillars of Muslim Golden Age. And then Ulama were no longer funded by commerce and merchants. Then the state started to sponsorship the madrasa system, establishing what I call Ulama State Alliance. Mongols and Crusaders came after, and they re-emphasized the importance of military leaders, like Saladin against the Crusaders, Mamluks in Egypt against Mongols because it was a natural instinct of societies when they see foreigners attack, they look to military heroes. They no longer search for philosophy, science, arts. And then many Muslim societies become, became inward looking and emphasizing military state and the ulema alliance rather than philosophy, science, and art. That was the indirect destruction of Mongols and Crusaders. Then Muslims recover politically, militarily established big empires like Ottoman, Safavi, and Hindu majority Muslim run Mughal. And they were definitely geopolitically very powerful, but they never reproduce scientific curiosity and productivity or even economic dynamism of the Muslim golden age. Then came European colonization, as you ask. Similar to Mongols and Crusaders, British, French, Russian colonizers were very destructive. They are still destroying. Look, today, Gaza, we see how 
my country, United States, is helping Israel to bomb Gaza, and they so far killed 22, 24, maybe more thousand people. It shows how international relations, imperialism, they can be destructive. But if we only focus on foreign factors, we always neglect and forget the problems at home or institutions or ideas. So Muslims and non-Muslims who live in Muslim majority countries, don't we need better institutions of academic production? Don't we need better economically competitive systems? If we don't build them, how are we going to be stronger? So in a very nutshell, the reason why my book, although it analyzed the negativity of colonization, it does not focus on colonization for two main reasons. One, chronologically, the intellectual and scientific stagnation in empires like Ottoman Safavi came before colonization. Ottomans were military very powerful. We cannot simply refer to colonizers for the decline of the Ottoman because the military elite was powerful, but it didn't get the printing press for 300 years. It couldn't catch up with philosophical and scientific developments. Economically, it lost the trends. Then Europeans became stronger institutionally and they came and make it a semi-colony and colonized certain parts of Middle East, North Africa. That's one reason why I don't focus colonization because chronologically at first Muslims lost their class relations, ideas, they had their internal problems. The second reason, the future of the Muslim world really can be better if we focus on our domestic problems rather than simply blaming foreign factors. Yes, there are negative foreign factors, but if we become better in terms of science and economy, then we can address them in a stronger way. So the big question, why does the Muslim world exhibit high levels of authoritarianism and anti-democratic tendencies? Because the Western neoliberal narrative is that the problem is Islam in and of itself, which personally I find rather shallow, lacking any real political, economic, nor historical analysis. I try to show, first of all, the variation that some Muslim countries are more open societies than the others, and economically some are better than the others. But overall, there is a problem. And the problem is unfortunately getting worse. For example, West Africa was a region I was analyzing with the case of Senegal, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso. We had four Muslim-majority democracies. They were better off the better than their Christian neighbors. But now three of them became authoritarian. Only Senegal persists. So the problem gets worse eventually. And Islam definitely is not the culprit because of many reasons. And let me just say two very quickly. One is that Islam was perfectly compatible, even the motivator of the golden era between eight and 12 centuries. Second, there are multiple interpretations of Islam. And any religion can be interpreted in a violent or peaceful way, in a liberal, democratic, or authoritarian way. So the material conditions and class relations are important. 
on this issue, first of all, when we let ulama, the Islamic clergy, decide everything on behalf of us, we, the society, individual groups, having hard time to produce new ideas. So honestly, let's look at even Turkey, for example. About half of society are more secular. They have their own secular ideologies, but let's say 50% or so are conservative. They take religion very seriously. A, a very efficient way of promoting democracy and development to convince those conservative people about the importance of freedom of speech, freedom of the, the importance of private property, the importance of balance of power and separation of powers and democratic participation. But these conservatives always look at the ulama, what the ulama think about these issues. And ulama, if they are in partnership with the government, has a hegemony over discourses. Individual Muslims like myself, when we say, the ulama say you don't have a legitimacy. And this is where I come and say, no, intellectuals are important. Muslim and non-Muslim intellectuals should be able to promote certain ideas to contribute societies. I think many people from the Balkans to Central Asia to Southeast Asia like my book because they see a critical analysis with a friendly and constructive criticism. On the show with me today is Prof. Ahmed Kuru, the author of Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment. We will continue our conversation after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan and with me via Zoom is Prof. Ahmed Kuru, the author of Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment. This conversation will also be available on podcasts. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you are listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you subscribe to us and drop us a review. So, Prof, something you mentioned very important, which I think a lot of people don't think about, is that, that the material conditions and class relations are important. Um, it's an important prism to understand what's going on. Which came first, Prof, the authoritarianism or the low levels of socioeconomic development in comparison to the world averages? In social science, generally, we are discussing uh, two puzzle. One puzzle, whether agency or structure matters, whether we as human agents have any role or structural changes like COVID impose on us. And the second puzzle, whether it is material factors or ideas. I think both are important. If you look at Afghanistan today, big structural change like American invasion, Soviet invasion, but the leaders of Taliban as an agent also responsible of certain problems. So the ideas of uh, interpretation of Islam and ideas, but why those ideas emerge in that context, we should analyze the material structure. And as you said, certain negative factors create what we call vicious circle. So many scholars use the term vicious circle versus virtuous circle. Virtuous circle where development help democracy, democracy help education, education help order. But in certain cases, violence, 
authoritarianism, underdevelopment create a vicious circle. So I think both are important and they are, democracy and development are related subjects, but at the same time, they are not the same. China today is having economic growth with authoritarianism. When in chapter three of my book, I look at how certain East Asian autocracies are different from Middle Eastern autocracies. I listed five differences. Let me just say briefly that in East Asia, the, the authoritarian regimes heavily invest in education. They have uh, better government efficiency on the problems of COVID earthquake, et cetera. Whereas in the Middle East, they don't invest in education and they don't show government efficiency. And also in uh, East Asia, they have export-oriented growth model, whereas in the Middle East, mostly oil-based rentier states. And East Asia now is much more peaceful. As you see, growth is possible with some authoritarian types, at least in the short run. But in some cases, especially in the Middle East, we see the worst version of both uh, underdevelopment and authoritarianism. Why did the orthodox callers um, or the ulamas and the military states form an alliance? And I'm wondering how has that the emergence of an alliance between the ulamas and the military states, um, how did they continue to grow, transform and lead us to where we are today? Until the 11th century, there was a golden era with productivity and innovation. Around 10 and 11th centuries, First of all, there was a major economic crisis started in Iraq, then spread to Iran. And the response was central control over uh, trade and uh, land distribution, land revenue distribution. And this state control continued in later empires like Ottoman and Safavis. And that destroyed the economic dynamism of the entrepreneur class that you could call the bourgeoisie in, in early Islamic societies. When the commercial class ended, uh, the relationship between trade and ulama was cut because almost all major Islamic scholars were connected to commerce. Abu Hanifa, the founder of Hanifi school was a silk merchant. Ahmed bin Hanbal worked in the textile sector, and both of them refused serving to state. And Abu Hanifa was prisoned and poisoned. Ahmed bin Hanbal was in prison and tortured. Then Imam Shafi refused to obey the state authority. There was he was detained and chained. Imam Malik criticized the authority. He was beaten and tortured. And in addition to these anecdotes, we have numerical data. In an analysis showed that out of 3,900 ulama between 8th and mid 10th, mid 11th centuries, only 9%, except to be Qadr and other officers, whereas 91% were privately funded. But after the 11th century, when we have military states of Selchuk's, Ottoman, Mamluk, Safavi, Mughal, and when they control economy and marginalize both philosophers and merchant class, the, the ulema became left alone without funding. Mm. And the funding came in the form of wakufs and indirect 
political control in the madrasa system called Nizamiye. Even the name Nizamiye coming from a politician, Selçuk Grand Vizier, Prime Minister of the Selçuk Empire, Nizamul Mulk. It was a political project. And the way they define curriculum in a way that they produce ulama in a standard type, willing to be partner of state, uh, no longer open to philosophy and natural sciences. They have very formal and literal understanding of Islam and Islamic law. They are no longer open to philosophical debates and discussions. Intellectuals are undermined. Even the term philosophy and a philosopher became pejorative terms in Muslim societies. So that's the what happened in the 11th century and continue. What role did this alliance play in contemporary politics in Muslim-majority countries? When we look at human history, the norm is the alliance between faith and crown. The separation is an exception. Right. Muslims between 8th and 11th centuries had an exceptional moment. And now some Western countries in the last 200 years uh, experiencing an exceptional period. But even in the West, it has a contested issue. In the United States now, evangelicals are forming an alliance with Donald Trump. In fact, this is my new book project to analyze how a clergy state alliance is in formation in the US, as I said. Then in Israel, Netanyahu established the most uh, far-right nationalist religious government of Israel political history. And in India, Modi having a nationalistic and religious uh, political system. And even Putin, despite the atheistic Soviet legacy, has now a partnership with the Orthodox Church. When I was in Paris last summer, I saw how Putin built a church in Paris. So this is really the norm, but Muslims had an exceptional era that ended and now longevity is obvious, but we shouldn't forget that in the late 19th century, many Muslim rulers uh, who were not colonized, especially in Istanbul and Cairo, were aware of the problem. So I am not the first, of course, many people for 200 years discussed this problem. In the Ottoman Empire, to make the long story short, the, there was a reform and the state bureaucrats first get the printing press. They remove ulema's uh, opposition. Then, they closed down the Janissaries, the classical army, which was a strong partner of Ulam. Then they established European style school system, bureaucracy. Similarly in Cairo, Muhammad Ali Pasha uh, abolished the Mamluks and sidelined the ulama. But the problem is that for about a century, many reformists, Turkey's Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, Egypt's Jamal Abdul Nasser, they were very top-down. Most of them were military leaders. Yes, they ended ulama state alliance, but they never truly appreciate intellectuals or bourgeoisie. They established very state-centric systems. So as a result of that, we came back to ulama state alliance, Islamist regime with the, as a reaction to secularist failures of democracy and development, 
Now we are seeing another cycle starting with the Iranian revolution of Islamization and ulema state alliance all around the Muslim world. So one of the theories as to why there is such a massive right-wing populist backlash, and like you rightfully put, it it is the same um, sort of um, principles and idea. It just takes up different forms depending on which country you are in. So in India, it's Hindu nationalism. In uh, in the US, in the West, it's Christian nationalism. It's anti-immigration. In countries like Malaysia, we are seeing the rise of extreme Islamist movements. One theory for that is that the left, the actual left, um, socialist movements, for example, have long been defeated or are very weak. The so-called center-left, um, left-leaning progressive parties have, over the past four decades, been you know, co-opted by neoliberalism. Um, and we live in this very neoliberal world, which have brought about a massive inequality gap. Um, uh, you know, wages have stagnated, people cannot buy houses, um, healthcare is becoming unaffordable, education standards uh, in public schools are dropping. Ultimately, there's the, it's a growing gap between the rich and the poor, and we are looking at how, uh, how much wealth is concentrated in the top 1%, or not even 1%, right, 0.5% over the past four decades. And what this has um, created is a very angry uh, working class masses, which is a fertile ground for then these demagogues, um, you know, uh, right wing populist leaders to use um, religious rhetoric and, and, you know, identity politics, majoritarianism to try and, you know, rile up um, a, a certain segment of society. You know, the reason you're poor and suffering is because that immigrant took your job, for example. And the reason you're poor and suffering is because of a sexual minority. Perhaps what's missing is this sort of strong intersection between the religious community and the left. Just one example comes to mind, right? When we look at Martin Luther King, he was a left-wing socialist radical thinker, but he was also a pastor in a church. So three things. First of all, during, during the Cold War, most religious leaders uh, were in alliance with anti-socialists because uh, they regard socialist communism as godless. So Martin Luther or liberation theology in Latin America, they were more exceptional conservatives generally in, on the right. But then the, after the end of the Soviet Union, definitely there was the global decline of communist socialism. You are right about that. Two factors. One factor now is demagogue leaders and how they were able to bring together nationalism and religion. This is something new because nationalism and religion were competitors, if not enemies, for decades. As you rightly mentioned, the income inequality everywhere, and it is a widening gap in the United States too. And there is no political organization that can truly be called left, then left the masses on the hands of demagogues. Another thing, social media. Social media, on the one hand, is emancipatory. So whenever, for example, when I had this police uh, problem in Malaysia, I put it on my Facebook. It makes me free to express myself. 
But at the same time, social media it has an anti-intellectual dimension. Anyone with a populist message can get thousands of followers and then produce some demagoguery to increase the likes and the retweets and reposts. Mm -hmm. And people no longer show respect to institutions like universities, media institutions. They say it's fake news. So these are the problems. So going back to solutions in my book, what can we do? First of all, for Muslim uh, conservatives or those who take Islamic identity seriously, here is my message. You may be happy in countries where you have majority with right wing, but look at Muslim minorities, large minorities, either those who are bombed in Gaza or 150 million Muslim minority in India or Muslim minority in Myanmar or even in the United States and France. So they, we, I am a minority in America from a religious point of view. And we as minorities need equal citizenship. We need freedom of religion, freedom of expression and right-wing populists are threatening as we see in Trump's Muslim ban. And then Muslims therefore should not be really pleased by this global trend. This global trend challenged Muslims' right all, all around the globe. And then let me conclude by the idea of equal citizenship. What is the main problem in Israel now? They don't provide, of course there are many problems, but they don't accept equal citizenship of Palestinians in the state of Israel. And wherever we go, there is this problem. But we Muslims, whenever people like myself promote, some people say these are Western ideas, equal citizenship, freedom of speech, freedom of association. But I'm telling them, look, my analysis of Muslim golden age showed that Muslims taught many things to Europe and European thinkers like John Locke, they were aware of Muslim early philosophical writings. So Muslims contribute certain institutional ideas in Europe. Now, we are living at a time when for or freedom or development, either as a minority or as a majority, we really need society based on coexistence of multiple religious identities, recognizing equal citizenship for everyone, regardless of their religions. That's how Muslims had a golden age. Let me conclude by an example. In the ninth century, when Muslims established world-renowned hospital, the chief medical doctors in Baghdad were Jewish and Christian. 500 years later, when in the 14th century they established another world-renowned hospital in Egypt, Mamluk. This time they say non-Muslims cannot be patient, they cannot be medical doctor. This is what I call decline. This is why I call the removal of the coexistence and toleration of the Muslim golden era. What I am suggesting is not a Western model. Instead, you had a very interesting historical experience and for the future, if you really want democracy and development, 
you need to remember how creative, how productive, and how open-minded the Muslim civilization was in its early history. Absolutely, because, you know, even when we look at Palestine, before 1948 especially, Palestinian Jews, Muslims, Christians lived together in in harmony. It was a beacon of knowledge and, and philosophy and arts and culture. I want to talk a little bit about how the people in the Muslim world have been fighting back against the state, against authoritarianism. And of course, the Arab Springs and, uh, and the Intifadas come to mind, both the first Intifada in the uh, in 2010s or even the second Intifada in 2018. I'm wondering how significant were these revolutionary movements? Why weren't they successful in overthrowing authoritarian regimes and in the events that they were somewhat successful, another authoritarian regime takes its place instead. I was very optimistic about the Arab Spring in 2012. My wife and I were pregnant. She was pregnant. And we went to Qatar, Doha. And in fact, our son was born in Doha. So people are coming to the US to give birth. We went to Qatar to give birth. Because we were, we want to be there during the Arab Spring. I wrote analysis. I visit uh, Tunisia. Met with Rashid Kanushi. I visited uh, Egypt six months before CC coup d'état. And what I understand from my research there at that time is that, of course, it was a very important moment, and people were mobilized to risk, sacrifice their lives for freedom. And but. Uh, the Islamists really try to hijack certain things in some countries, at least in Egypt, with the idea that it wasn't for freedom and they did it for Islamist utopia, which was a wrong idea. But regardless whether you criticize Islamists or secularists, one fact was that uh, theoretically there wasn't enough preparation for democracy. There was not sufficient intellectual investment and civil society more importantly, because these authoritarian regimes didn't let NGOs and civil society emerge. There was too much state control. And it and the time was not enough to really uh, to establish civil society, build democracy, and create open societies. But I want to be optimistic about the future when you analyze the French history after the revolution there was the rebirth of monarchy, even the church state establishment and secularism. There was so many back and forth. That's why we have third republic, fourth republic, fifth republic in France. So uh, I want to be optimistic about the future of the Middle East in terms of democratization. If we do the theoretical work enough, if we build strong civil societies, and if we really learn how to live together, without sectarianism, without deep uh, ethnic tension between Turks and Kurds, Arabs and Kurds, and then that may be the way for democracy and development. Can you discuss the role of progressive social movements and activism within the Muslim world right now and how they navigate the challenges posed by conservative elements? Um, be it gender rights, redistribution of wealth, um, pro-democracy movements, things like that. And the reason I ask this is because we have a lot of non-Muslim listeners. And again, um, you know, the, the very Western-skewed neoliberal type of thinking is that 
none of these exist in the Muslim world. You know, progressive movements, gender rights activism, so on and so forth. Um, you know, movements to redistribute wealth, movements to democratize. First of all, even in Western countries, progressives are always minority. The United States, if you really look at progressive people and groups, and you, you, you wouldn't find them majority. And that's one thing. In the Muslim world, wherever I go, I try to meet all different groups. In Malaysia, too, I meet with Muslims, non-Muslims. I met with feminists and different groups. Uh, they exist, but the challenges are very heavy and the authoritarian forces, unfortunately, are very strong. Even the groups I criticize in my book, because I said in my book that recent, in the last 50 years, three groups, ulama, Sufi sheikhs, and Islamist politicians pursue an agenda of Islamization, which was not very progressive. But among these three groups, I met people who were relatively more progressive than others. For example, among the ulama, I visit Indonesia. I met with Nahdat ulama leaders in Washington, DC. I attend their conferences. They try to promote a new notion of humanitarian Islam. And they try to pursue an agenda where equal citizenship, where the rule of law are emphasized from a religious point of view. Where do we go from here? And given what's happening in Palestine right now, because it is, you know, the Israel genocide, um, the intensifying of the genocide and ethnic cleansing and their military operations since October the 7th has been brutal. Um, they have killed, like you mentioned, 20,000 people, 2 million people have been displaced. But across the world, um, something I'm seeing um, that I haven't seen, not even during the when, when American invasion of Iraq, is that it Palestine is bringing together people, um, the progressive voices, people are fighting back against their governments, broader coalitions of unions, various causes, environmentalists, uh, Muslims, non-Muslims coming together to push back against the, the, the Western imperialism and, and so on and so forth. And not just in the West. We, we know that in the Middle East, many of the, the head of governments, the rulers, the monarchs, they have been trying to naturalize relations with Israel over the past decade. It seems to me that now they, are, they can't do that because once again, their people are coming down to the streets in tens of, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people and fighting back against their head of governments. Does this give you a sense of hope for the future? So I, I can have a conversation with you for hours. And the more we talk, the more optimistic <laughs> I become. Thank you. And I agree with you about the importance of this tragedy. Uh, in two weeks, I am organizing an event in my university by inviting another professor from another campus and we chose a title in an interesting title, Black Liberation and Palestine, because we see how Black Liberation theology, uh, anti-colonization, anti-slavery, are directly linked to the defense of Palestinians uh, as a universal right, nothing to do with religious Muslim defense. No, as a human being, as you see in the case of South Africa, 
how they came out and brought this issue of genocide into international court. This may really become a way of the people in the Middle East to raise voice and use uh, their leverage against authoritarian rulers in Arab countries and beyond. But we have to be prepared this time. We should not make repeat the mistakes of the Arab Spring. We should be theoretically better prepared. We should learn the way how to go beyond sectarianism and ethnic tension because colonialists or dictators know how to manipulate uh, these identity politics of Kurds versus Arab, Turks versus Kurds, Arab versus Persian, and create animosity to divide the people and divide and rule is not only a colonial principle, but also a good principle of dictators. And on that note, Prof Guru, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. And I hope we will see each other in future, in person maybe, then we can have the conversation again. Thank you so much. That was Prof. Ahmed Kuru, the author of Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We are available on Spotify, the Apple Podcasts, BFM app or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box. If you could subscribe to us um, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, drop us a review. I would really, really appreciate it. I'm Darshan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.